Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast after a, a little break. And I'm very pleased to welcome back Rana Gonheim, who is the head of energy systems and the decarbonization unit at the UN's Industrial Development Organization. And the first time, Rana, that you and I spoke to each other was pretty much a year ago because it was just ahead of the COP in Glasgow and uh, the launch of the Green Public Procurement Pledge. But before we dive into an update, um, for those people that didn't hear that episode, could you just give us a bit of a sense of who you are and how have you come to be doing this work in this space? Yeah, well, hi, thanks, Alex, uh, for having me again on, on this podcast. And uh, it's a pleasure to see you again. Uh, I'm, as you say, Rana Ghanem. I had the division for uh, energy systems and industrial decarbonization at UNIDO. And of course, it's been a journey. Uh, I've been um, always uh, environmentally conscious, uh, you know, as a, as a child uh, growing up in uh, Lebanon. And, and I've always wanted to see, you know, how can we transform the world and not just to uh, bring climate justice, uh, but also to ensure that we support countries like uh, Lebanon um, to develop further, because it's also part of uh, all developing countries' interest to move towards uh, more industrialized uh, economies. But then, you know, we don't need to support industrialized economies and grow emissions. And, and this is an area that I find very fascinating. How do we decouple that growth from emissions? How do we provide prosperity for uh, people in developing countries without really uh, adversely affecting uh, our climate? And, uh, you know, so it's this you know, drive to uh, both uh, help countries develop and at the same time uh, tackle challenges let, uh, like climate change uh, that really Really, uh, brought me to where I am today and uh, very happy to be within my role championing uh, some of the global initiatives that are challenging governments to do better uh, on uh, climate programs. And you you come into the Decarb Connect world um, because we, we intersect on this idea of the green procurement and how essential it is. You know, it's no surprise to you or to listeners that one of the things we hear about the most from industry is we can do this work, we can do the decarbonisation. Yes, it's going. To, it's possible, we can spend on it, but who is going to be willing to pay for the green products on the other end because it will cost more to produce them? And obviously this is what your programme is all about, this Green Public Procurement Pledge. And as I mentioned at the beginning, launched last year at COP. So maybe our starting point is how did that go? And what have you seen happen in the last year or so? So we've just maybe a bit of a recap. So we've identified public procurement for steelist and cement as one of the key levers for creating change for the adoption of new technologies uh, to decarbonize these sectors. And primarily because in the countries that are already members of our industrial deep decarbonization initiative and the green public uh, procurement pledge already at COP26, uh, we had Germany, uh, UK, uh, Canada, UAE, um, as well as India, you know, in these countries, um, green procurement or procurement uh, is responsible for 25 to 40% of 
the, the, the volumes of steel and cement that are going to public construction projects and, and others as well. So this is a very strong uh, lever. Um, and, uh, you know, what we also see is that while the, the, the technology costs um, upstream for the adoption of, uh, you know, green hydrogen, let's say, in steel making are quite high and significant, if you look at the downstream cost, uh, for example, for a house or for a car, this is really less than 1% of, uh, of the value of that house or the value of that car. And so this is why, if you look at it this way, it's really the green premium is, is minimal. And what we are calling on is that, you know, procurement does not need to look only at the cost because the cost of the uh, issues that come to the climate, to the health of people, this should all be built in. And if you add that into your equation in, in, in looking at uh, procurement programs, then it's it shouldn't be only the cost that weighs uh, what uh, decisions are made, but there's also needs to be these other parameters that uh, would make obviously uh, the scale move more towards uh, the, the greener uh, products. So it's kind of interesting when you think about the timeline of all these things that were happening at COP last year, because one of the other kind of announcements that was happening alongside yours was at the First Movers Coalition. And we've seen in the last year, First Movers Coalition, Steel Zero, Concrete Zero, these other green procurement enablers, maybe I'll phrase it that way, kind of come online. What's your perspective on that? Do, do you see that these programs, are, are they able to work together? Are there kind of collaborations or support um, opportunities between them? T tell me a bit about how, how has that kind of woven into the work that you're doing? Uh, absolutely. I mean, what we focus on is the public procurement piece. So really challenging governments to adopt uh, targets for green uh, procurement, be it by setting baselines already uh, for 2025 of how much uh, do they actually spend on, on, on procurement and how much embodied uh, carbon is uh, entailed in all the different uh, public procurement projects, uh, setting tar interim targets for 2030. Uh, setting uh, or aligning uh, uh, the 2050 procurement goals with the net zero uh, goals and, and so on and so forth. And uh, basically, it's not enough for, uh, so First Movers Coalition uh, brings together a number of um, uh, companies that are making these commitments and of course, countries that are endorsing and, 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 and these commitments and looking at uh, how to support these companies further. But what we are bringing in is actually more uh, the country's own commitment. So the two go hand in hand together as long as we work together on more harmonized definitions for uh, what is low carbon steel, what is low carbon cement, and what are the reasonable targets for, for public as well as for, uh, for private. And this is actually the collaboration that we nurture with initiatives like FMC, like Steel Zero, uh, uh, working closely with uh, IDDI and, and bringing them on board of our working groups. And similarly, you know, whenever uh, uh, they are uh, looking at certain definitions, you know, this is an exchange that is already happening across the initiatives. So we recognize that uh, for us to create a more sustainable demand for low carbon steel and low carbon cement, we really need to be giving a more harmonized uh, picture to the market uh, and, and also uh, more common uh, approaches. So um, really happy to see all this coming together because just like uh, governments have that power, also 
private sector companies and construction companies, which uh, uh, Steel Zero brings a lot of those as well. You know, this is how you create a market effect across different segments of the of the uh, market, and not just government or private sector or so on. Yeah, and um, within within that, I, I guess there's two or three points I'll pick up on. I'll, I'll pick up on. You mentioned this kind of harmonization of the language and the definitions that we use. We'll come on to that a little later because I am interested in this difference that we start to hear between low carbon and near zero and different terminology coming up. But we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's let's come back then to the, the interim targets that you just mentioned in brief. Obviously, that, that was the big takeaway from Pittsburgh and your time there was announcing um, how the kind of the, the green public procurement pledge is going to put in place or has put in place these 2030 interim targets. Can you talk a little more about that? Because obviously, I, I guess if you're going to be a cynic in the world of public sector anything, um, the cynics hear about pledges and then they just think, well, that's words. And of course, the 2030 interim targets is what really starts to make it much more real, isn't it? And kind of tangible. So talk us through what that announcement was and what what, what we should expect to see coming out of, of those discussions. Um, so there's two folds to that uh, announcement. Uh, one is actually a commitment from the countries that are part of this Green Public Procurement Pledge to undertake national consultations and commit uh, towards the procurement of near zero uh, technologies uh, for uh, 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 key projects. Uh, you know, and, and, and we're going to be working on the definition of what are these key projects. Uh, and and, and uh, essentially what it is, it is it's trying to stimulate new innovations in energy technologies that could help uh, decarbonize the sector. And, and we want governments to already make these commitments today and, and to make sure that some of these technologies are in the market before 2030, because you know we would be reaching that tipping point if we don't start acting today on creating those new innovative technologies. So that's the first part of it. And then the second piece is if we don't start implementing today at a more commercial scale, some of the existing technologies like uh, hydrogen and, and, and CCUS and, and others, um, then we're also going to be uh, re reaching that tipping point. So this is the second tier of that pledge where also countries are committing to undertake a consultation uh, uh, on uh, uh, an interim target for low carbon uh, steel and low carbon cement in construction projects. And there we're uh, very much heavily uh, relying on the IEA methodology for the definition of low carbon uh, steel uh, where uh, you know there's different bands uh, for uh, low carbon steel and, and every country is, is going to be different. We're challenging countries to be as ambitious as possible uh, depending on their national circumstances, but sometimes it wouldn't be fair to, you know, to, 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 to put in the same category as well countries that have this access to the cutting edge technologies uh, and, and countries that are just starting on that pathway. Uh, so this is where we, we are challenging countries to really come back to us and say which bands are the those that could be applicable uh, to them and uh, and and uh, those that they could actually also accomplish. So I know it's kind of vague and, and probably people are going to be saying, is this ambitious enough? I mean, 
we are challenging countries to go to band A if they can, but we just also have to make sure that we don't set it at, as band A and just have one government or two that are committing to that. We want to really bring more countries uh, on board. And how do we, so essentially the work starts now, to be fair, you know, we've, we've had all this work in discussing and agreeing on a pledge language that would be agreeable to uh, a number of uh, of uh, countries and we've uh, brought in expert views from industry from uh, uh, academia and and, and various uh, experts uh, so but now that we have the pledge our work as well as the secretariat of this industrial deep decarbonization initiative is how to set up now the reporting uh, uh, on against this pledge how do we monitor that actually Actually, things are on track and how do we come back uh, to uh, all the public and, and really announce the impacts that this has created. So it's a lot of preparatory work so far. And I know that, you know, moving forward, our biggest uh, now uh, task is to really ensure that these are not just uh, words, but actually actions that governments carry forward and that we would uh, kind of monitor and, and return to everyone with. So between now and let's say the first few thousand tons of green steel or green cement being bought and used in projects in these in these countries, that the main work it is is it more about getting you know this discussion within country or is it is there something else that is another kind of key hurdle would you say like if I'm if I'm a green cement producer or I have a green steel product what I suppose well, if I were looking at this, I'd be thinking, well, this is great. This sounds amazing. This is just what we need. But when is it going to get to a point where my product is being bought? So what, you know, there's a few questions in there. That's a classic Alex Cameron <laughs> podcast question, isn't it? But, but um, what's, what are the hurdles between now and that, that kind of, that, that reality? So indeed, we've given the countries now almost nine months, 12 months to go and do that consultation, bring all the stakeholders nationally uh, to uh, really define what that. So if you're an industry representative from any of the countries that have committed to this uh, green public procurement pledge, you know, be involved in these consultations because that's your platform to make sure that the most ambitious goal is um, uh, is achieved. And, and when would it start resulting? So there's a couple of things that we still need to get in place before it's really getting towards those investments because the first tier of the pledge that I mentioned is actually the requirement to um, require disclosure on embodied carbon on public construction projects in 2025 because that's like the baseline that's that's what is going to help us where we stand and there's a bit of work that we could do still uh, to track data on you know how much is being spent uh, uh, on these type of projects how much is going uh, to uh, these commodities as well how much of these commodities are being used uh, so sort of a lot of work to really um, uh, get also the countries to better understand where their expenditures on public procurement uh, are. And so this is where also I would see uh, a bit of our work over the coming uh, year. And then I would say probably starting 2026 or so, this is when we're going to see that maybe materializing as well into uh, contracts. Uh, so um, it does seem like uh, it's 
a number of years <laughs> from now. But in reality, these are really large infrastructure projects. And uh, for them to be realized as well, I think none, the, the industry is essentially not going to be ready either uh, to supply this quantity before before then. So, so I, I would tend to think that as I'm an optimist, that is even an optimistic uh, uh, scenario or more where I would like to see things heading. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? When you, when you, someone like me, I don't work within, you know, the public sector sphere. So on the one hand, does that sound like a long timeline? Well, of course, but the flip side is you're laying strong foundations. That's the point here, isn't it? Is having real foundations on which green materials markets can sit. Uh, and that point about actually having the technology and the data reporting in place so that we can monitor those commitments. I mean, yes, because otherwise all you've got is a commitment maybe some procurement, but no real measurement of, of the real the real impact. Um, let me let me ask a different question then. So the, the kind of key point of why why is green public procurement so important? It is partly the sheer volume of government spend on this, but it is because because of that volume, this can be the market creation moment, right? This is the way to start bringing down the cost of those materials. When you're talking to your pledge group and and the people that you're hoping to bring into it what what do they say about the current state of the green premium you know the reality of the cost to them how do you talk with them about that how how do we get over that hump of just this is going to cost more initially but you are a big player in what's going to make the cost come down how, how do those conversations go I mean, I have to say that the com countries we're speaking to are the first movers on this, so they are convinced in it and uh, in the power of this and 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 the fact that you know that they, there needs to be a green premium paid by and that the governments probably have that responsibility to to bear it and uh, and so I wouldn't say, I would say though that on the side of this you know a lot of skepticism sometimes in talking some to some other experts saying okay but this is taxpayers' money like why you know at the end of the day how is why should we use the, 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 the taxpayers' money to really uh, pay for that green uh, premium? So, uh, and there, I think I'd like to go back to where I started this is just like, we really need to integrate the broader you know the multiple benefits and the multiple costs as well so so that it relates to uh, if we continue the business as usual and if you weigh all this in you know i'm quite sure that you know the green premium would be negligible in comparison to all the costs that it's you know putting forward also on the other side to reduce and mitigate uh, the impacts of of climate change so yeah, uh, the governments we're talking to are the first movers and luckily they're uh, on board and committed to see how do we help them make the economic case for this. Um, and, and and to those that don't think that we need should or governments should bear that green premium, I would just say we need to look at costs in a different way and, and sort of weigh all of these in and uh, and then sort of look at whether this, this green premium is something significant. So slightly different question for you then. Um, I mean, even you know, two or three years ago, we wouldn't have thought that a pandemic could have an impact on decarbonization and these sorts of plans. A year ago, we probably didn't think that uh, a war or an energy crisis could, you know, would come and have such an impact on all sorts of things in industry. What's what's your sense of the the kind of the war in Ukraine, the spike in energy prices, and, and does this act as an incentive 
to carry on with this work? Does it act as more of a block when you're talking to this pledge class of these first movers? What, what's your sense of like the current context and how that's a, a pro or a con to the, to the work that you're trying to do? I mean, industry is the first to be affected in any of these, you know, crises, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's like a, a shortage in energy supply, you know, and, and, and their, their, their business, their day-to-day -day operations are going to be affected. Their competitiveness is going to be affected. They, if they don't secure that energy supply, and maybe this is the moment as well when industry starts feeling uh, that we really need to shift because of energy security and energy energy uh, supply uh, purposes and 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 so um, I would hope uh, that this is something that's going to be positive and influencing industries and 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 government support to industry to actually take that move sooner than later uh, because really it is at the end of the day in my view uh, an opportunity and and actually you know living in in in, in Austria now I'm just like very happy to see that for the first time sourcing my energy from renewables is actually cheaper and so how do we how do we make use of such a positive thing that happened now although we're talking about security of supply for winter and you know the spiking in prices but how can we use that to actually influence also on the longer term um uh, the behavior and switching of end users basically at the end of the day be it in uh, industry or others to really take that sustainable path because that sustainable path is the more resilient one is the more secure one and is also on the long run like the the more cost competitive one um so yeah i think that's that's really uh, uh where i would like to see uh, change happen okay well before i um close out there's a, a question I just want to come back to, um, which is around, you, you talked at the beginning or early in the conversation about the need for harmonization of language. And we, we hear this in all parts of the decarbonization discussion, whether you're talking about uh, EU policy or how companies talk to each other about their own targets. Specifically, I'm interested in the low carbon and near zero terminology that that sort of come up this year what what is the difference between that what does that what does that really mean um and what does it mean to your you know the, the pledges in this in this gathering yeah so essentially uh low carbon is is um you know more has to do with the deployment of technologies that we have today at, at hand and that could bring down the embodied carbon in cer certain commodities uh, and, and reduce that, uh, you know, to, to you know, to a certain level. And that level, for example, for steel, you know, that's where I would look at the IEA uh, report and the different bands that they've introduced. So depending on the different emissions, depending on the different technologies that are being used, but it's really mostly about using technologies we have um, uh, today. And, and the near zero is just more about pushing, uh, you know, innovative technologies that could help go beyond, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the low carbon uh, ones, and that could help also in achieving our net zero goals in 2050. Um, 
So that's how I would just explain uh, slightly the difference. But of course, I mean, you know, if we want to enter into the technical details of, of both, I think it's going to be, uh, yeah, a lot uh, more, uh, yeah, debatable, let's say, between experts and all. But that's how I would just generally distinguish uh, the two. And, uh, and that's how we sort of try to create this uh, push and pull through the initiative for existing technologies that need this commercialization and and new innovative technologies that we need to bring to the market and and help in influencing that um yeah okay and then just as a sort of a close out thought i suppose what is it that needs to happen next you talked about this need to talk within countries within states you know about how how this can work how to to move it forward and that's something that you're those uh, first movers in the pledge have, have got to do next but what what else needs to happen what what needs to accelerate for this to really kind of shift into the gear of deployment and you know the the real kind of procurements that phase is there anything else that we we as constituents we as industrialists should be doing mm -hmm. to, to help accelerate this well, uh, a number of things, really. First and foremost, we like that's probably on our side more, but also probably, you know, applying more pressure, more governments need to join this. Uh, at the moment, we're very excited. U.S. joined at the meeting we had in Pittsburgh two year, two weeks ago. The U.S. joined IDDI, Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, Japan as well actually just informed us uh, last week also that they would like to join. So, you know, we need the ball to roll uh, a bit faster and for more countries to join. Uh, second is, uh, I think we need to move this conversation. It's at the moment very centered on the North. We need to also bring in the South and the South voices a lot more because we want to avoid and we want to make sure that that next factory with yesterday's technology is not uh, going and to be established somewhere in Africa or in developing countries. So we need to really foster that discussion very much with the, uh, with the South. And that's where I'm looking at COP27 as a good, uh, you know, stepping stone uh, with Egypt hosting the COP. Uh, it's an African COP, you know, we really hope that that is part of the discussion as well. And we've worked on that as, uh, with the partners. Um, and then, you know, the, the third thing is, uh, how do we bring these investments? I mean, industries, how do we bring these invest, like, you know, talk to us as well, let us know how can we help uh, create the the frameworks to bring those investments and how can we again make sure that these investments are also happening in uh, in India and, and and others and not just you know those couple of planned investments that are uh, uh, already ongoing so how do we go deeper I guess it's not just about faster but how do we go uh, deeper also and and really bring in uh, more countries um, uh, more global south countries and and also uh more uh companies yeah well we'll be interested to to hear how your cop goes because i i think the kind of that shift to it being very much the african or certainly middle east South african cop is is important isn't it a different different kind of lens than perhaps glasgow was able to bring so uh, i'll be interested to hear your thoughts after that but um rana thank you so much for coming back and giving us a little of your time it's really fascinating to hear how something of this scale this kind of a you know mobilization of such at scale procurement power interesting to hear how it works in reality but also you know really when you think about the scale of the governments already involved those coming on board it, 
it is moving at quite a pace. It's just, yeah, fascinating. So <laughs> congratulations. It may not always feel like that, but it's uh, very interesting to hear about. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Alex. And yeah, let's, uh, I think let's keep that <laughs> uh, moving. And, uh, and uh, I really hope that we have more uh, results, uh, not just centered around COPS, but, uh, you know, really <laughs> uh, keeping track of where we are at the end of the day, where we need to be. Great. Well, safe travels to Egypt and um, hope to catch up with you again before too long. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs>